0: Later, we'll be hearing about an interview you conducted with Josh Davies. He's the digital news editor at the Natural History Museum in London. And it's all about the new stroke discovered species from 2023. Yes, well, new species are being
1: discovered all the time. And in fact, it's not just that new species are being discovered, it has been found increasingly that many species. Which we thought were individual, turn out to be multiple. Things like uh, pipistrel bats, for instance. We thought there was only one pipistrel bat, but in fact, we now know that there are three. So you're getting this division of nature, all that, of course, we're losing species at an alarming rate, but we're also producing new species or discovering new species.
0: And a giant penguin, I believe, has been discovered. Or was it always there?
1: well the giant penguin if long gone I think it was the tertiary actually by the time it disappeared but it was a huge animal a very very large thing three metres high and and, and a huge heavy animal Uh, I I wonder how on earth it managed to to get by because it would have to hobble out and lay an egg and incubate that egg for weeks on end he was a kind of an avian whale as far as I could see and uh, it seems to me it's the wrong way to go if you're a penguin flightlessness <laughs> and becoming a whale.
0: You're just not qualified for the job. I'm a big fan of penguins, Richard, and I would have loved to be able to see that giant penguin. It sounds absolutely amazing. I think the way you described it as being like a whale of, of a penguin, it kind of it's apt, and I think that that's one of the reasons probably why it didn't survive. It'd be very susceptible to things like climate change, be very susceptible to predators, and we often find with a lot of those species, they tend to evolve to become smaller because they're, they're better at surviving. The largest penguin today is the emperor mm. penguin, which is still a, a very large bird, but nowhere near three metres. Uh, it would have been an astonishing thing to see. Of course, unlike most birds, the penguin wouldn't have had to bother about flying. So at least when you're in the water and you're in that sort of aquatic environment, you can afford to get larger. If that bird was still had the power of flight and was able to fly, then there's no way it could get as large as three metres in terms of its body size. Just, just too big for it to be able to fly effectively.
1: It cashed in its chips. That was the great gamble that these flightless birds take. Drop flying. And let's see what the benefits are. And penguins have been very successful. There's about 16 species of penguin, all more or less confined to the southern hemisphere. There are a few on the equator, but it's been a very successful formula down there. So the big giant penguin, well, it wasn't a totally ridiculous idea to go flightless. But uh, he paid the price
0: Apparently the wasps have done very well Something like 619 new species Have been described over the past 12 months
1: Yes, remarkable Now they're not the kind of We have two very common wasps The common wasp and the German wasp We have six species in Ireland as far as I know That's the uh, social wasps And people think of when they think of wasps they think of the social wasps the ones in the in the black and amber jerseys but there is a whole host of other wasps solitary wasps Cuckoo wasps, There are wasps that lay their eggs in the nest of another wasp. There are parasitic wasps, a very great many parasitic wasps. They lay their egg on, on the, uh, the body of another species. So there's a great profusion of those. I think in Britain there's several thousand on the list and it can increase all the time. We have a, a long list of wasps. We have loads of these solitary wasps.
0: Can you imagine a penguin the size of a giant Panda. We spoke about it at the top of the programme. Then imagine huddles of them, waddling about the place. It seems, if you go back 50 million years ago, large penguins were quite the thing. The fossil of such a giant creature was discovered in New Zealand last year and it was one of the extraordinary 815-odd new species recorded at the Natural History Museum in London. Richard Collins spoke to Josh Davis, digital news editor at the Natural History Museum, about some of the many and varied species uncovered. Josh, 815 new
1: species of animal discovered by the Natural History Museum in 2023. Now, the romantic image we laypeople have of the kind of person who discovers a new species is of Mary Anning digging away on the Jurassic Coast or Russell Wallace slashing his way through bouts of dysentery and malaria through the jungles of new guinea and sending back the odd specimen to london or whatever but when is it all gone are there some people like that still or do new species come now from more elevated more serene sources
2: yeah so it's actually um a mix of both really there are still definitely people going out there and um you know collecting new specimens from the jungles i mean of costa rica or Um, Central Africa and places like that that certainly is still um, happening a lot of the time also there are a bunch of new species that are simply found still in the collections of the Natural History Museum you know there's a moth described this year that had been in the collections since 1886 there are something like 80 million objects in the museum's collections um, and people definitely haven't gone through all of them, <laughs> um, so there are still new species turning up all the time um, within, with still like sitting on the drawers and within the collections. Um, so yeah, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a mixture, really.
1: Is it fair to divide this world of yours into lumpers and splitters? Those who like to lump everything together, they don't like to recognise anything new if they can possibly avoid it, and splitters who find clefts in our theory about some species or other and divided into two or three. I'm thinking of something like the pipistrel bat, for instance. We used to think there were simply pipistrels. Now, of course, we think of three different kinds of pipistrelle. That, that is a new discovery of species, but sort of half-baked. It's not a real new discovery. It's just an enlightened approach to an existing discovery. Now, to what extent is this new discovery? So to what extent are they like that?
2: A bit of both, really. Um, So, for example, I mean, as you're saying, like with the pipistre bats, when it comes to mammals, there are obviously a lot fewer species of mammals. Um, And so, by and large, most have been described. So when new species do come up for mammals, often it is, as you're saying, like people splitting what we thought was one species and finding out that actually, you know, perhaps there are half a dozen within that complex. Um, But for things like the insects um, and other groups of animals which are like really sort of highly sort of under-studied. Um, then most of those are actual new species really distinct from one another things that people have just never seen before and so they're able to sort of give a new name to them and say that this is something completely new and never seen
1: Well, now, to what extent is the concept of species still useful? Isn't there a kind of cline between things? As I look at gulls, for instance, herring gulls, you get a whole range of things that closely resemble herring gulls. There are warblers and things of that kind. To what extent is this rather like a series of islands that are connected by a shallow sea underneath, no longer radically different in the old Noah's Ark way?
2: Yes, this is a topic which I absolutely really love. It's about how do you define a species and how do you describe them? Because you're right, because, you know, when we're talking about species, it's not distinct individual things. You know, it is a continuation from one to the next. And when we sort of come to define a species, it's very, to a certain extent, quite arbitrary. You know, it's a human coming in and saying, this is what is one species and this is what another species. And one of my favorite examples of this is that actually when you're talking about across biology as a whole, there's something like, 25-30 different definitions of what species is and depending on what sort of type of scientist you're talking to so whether you're talking to someone who's describing wasps or whether you're talking to someone who's describing plants or someone who's describing dinosaurs they're all working to different definitions of what a species is because nothing quite maps across the entire tree of life so to a certain extent we are just arbitrarily putting things in boxes but the flip side of that is like we need to do that because you can't talk about these animals and you can't talk about these species um, without having these def- like definite defined units. And so whilst there is sort of understanding that there's a lot of flex, that it is quite arbitrary, it's still a really useful definition and distinction to have so that you can actually talk about, you know, um, a herring gull or a black-headed gull or a greater black-back gull, you know, rather than talking about gulls in general. You, you can define these individual units, these individual species.
1: Now, of your eight hundred and fifteen new species, what stands out? What are the really significant findings in twenty twenty three about speciation?
2: Yeah, I think one of the most significant is the fact that, so out of eight hundred and fifteen, you know, six hundred and nineteen were wasps, and I think that sort of possibly surprises a lot of people. Um, I think, especially in general, people sort of think that maybe beetles are the most specious group of um, animals, but actually. Um, most um, entomologists, most people who study insects um, reckon that it probably is wasps and then followed by flies, interestingly and beetles will probably come in third Um, it's just that beetles typically have more people studying them than flies but yeah, I think the fact that there are so many wasps there are so many of these sort of critically important species and animals as well I mean, when we're talking about the wasps um, we're not talking about what we might think of um, the, the black and white striped insect that sort of ruins picnics and things like that Um, We're talking about tiny, tiny parasitic um, insects that are um, often vital for uh, not just sort of ecosystem health, so for forests um, and um, rainforests, but also for agriculture and things like that. Um, So I think the fact that there is just this huge wealth of unknown diversity still waiting to be found, I think that's really exciting um, and quite surprising to most people.
1: Now, one of the wasps you've discovered last year is crucial uh, to uh, people in Africa. I've heard it claimed, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but that uh, this wasp prevents the deaths of 300 lives a year. Is this true?
2: Yeah, it's to do with um, the species which are, because they're all parasitic um, wasps, so that means that they are um, laying the eggs um, in other insects, typically, um, and then the larvae, the eggs will hatch and the larvae will eat the insects. Um, and so, a lot of these parasitic wasps are really critical to agriculture because they prey on agricultural pests, so things like um, thrips um, and other sort of what scientists call true bugs, um, which can devastate crops and can cause like massive crop failure. And so, a lot of these small, tiny parasitic wasps—they might not seem like much, and they might not seem that important—but they are keeping those agricultural pests under control, which in turn is, you know, saving um, probably millions of people's lives. Yeah.
1: It's a window on the past. These, these findings are a window on the past. You have discovered things about creatures that are no longer with us, that are long gone, in fact. Among them is one rather fascinating one, a giant penguin. Surely a giant penguin is a contradiction in terms. You can't really lay eggs and be a giant, or can you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. This is an absolutely brilliant find, actually by... Um, a scientific associate and colleague, uh, Dan Fields, over in the University of Cambridge. Um, it's a species of giant penguin called uh, Kamemanu fordisi. It lived in New Zealand about 57 million years ago um, and probably, they think, reached about 150 kilograms in weight, which is about three times as heavy as the largest penguin currently alive today, which is the emperor penguin. They only get to about 45 kilos. Um, it, evolved, it evolved sort of quite, quite soon um, after the extinction of the dinosaurs, which I think is super interesting. Um, There's probably something in there about the marine environments are sunny free, and so these animals can sort of attain bigger sizes and sort of fill those niches. Um, But they weren't also alone, which I think is really interesting and quite exciting. So there was another species of giant penguin described at the same time called Petrodiptes, and that reached about 50 kilograms. So whilst it was a lot smaller than Kame Manu, um, it was still, again, bigger than even our biggest penguins today.
1: Penguins seem to be very unhappy in their skin. The ones today want to be... Whales and dolphins. They don't want to be birds anymore. And here we have a penguin long ago wanting to go even further and become a whale, which is an extraordinary thing. And if you're going to have to haul out and lay an egg, it seems to me a disaster to be as big as that.
2: Marine mammals today, so for example, there are some seals which get to genuinely extraordinary sizes. So you get um, sort of southern elephant seals. They all reach, you know, in the magnitude of tonnes heavy. Um, especially the big males, um, and they still obviously manage to hold themselves up onto the beaches and onto the sands. Um, so it's not an unusual situation. It's, it seems to be that um, that transition from obviously like land into water, you know, it's it's allowing these animals to get big, and if they um, still want to come back and, and lay eggs, you know, a lot of them can do this. You know, even today um, there are egg-laying marine, um, marine animals, so for example a leatherback turtle, they reach about 800 kilos a tonne in weight. They're genuinely huge animals. And they still come back onto land and lay eggs.
1: That's all about heat retention, is it? After all, there's no point in being enormous if you want to rush after things and catch them. And if you're in the sea, there's no place to hide if you're a fish. You, you will have to pursue the fish. Uh, now, this is um seems a strange... Diversion a strange way to develop and the bigger you get, the more difficult it is to catch anything other than huge shoals of krill or something like that. so the penguin was presumably a whale in all but name
2: yeah i mean it's it's certainly seeming that way i mean I think the the larger animals are i mean some of them are well. So, i mean like for example, a killer whale is a huge animal and that's still eating um catching active prey and catching things you know fast things like seals and and in some places um penguins and things like that it is i think a large degree to do with as you mentioned heat retention um i think it is also allowing them to eat larger prey as well so i think there's, a, there's I think that's what is the main thought at the moment and the reason why they got so big
1: josh that is fascinating i'd love to go into these things a lot more with somebody with your expertise but time is marching on thank you very much josh
2: thank you so much for having me it's been an absolute pleasure